Welcome, everyone, to this LSE Economics Department debate this evening. We are fortunate indeed and delighted to have Paul Donovan and George Magnus, about both of whom I will say more in a minute, but they are here with us tonight to speak on the topic that you see up here, the euro, whether it will survive, but also more generally on the place of economics as we go through an era that's become characterized as one of greater and greater political extremism. Now, the single currency, the euro, as you know, came into being on the tail end of perhaps the boldest peacetime experiment in international relations of the last century. This was an initiative to form a union of large, separate, individually powerful and sovereign European nations. The idea was that this union would enlarge the footprint would it, is there anyone else who's here in, who's brought in the wrong room? Okay. The idea was that this union would enlarge the footprint of democracy in the world. It would heighten respect for human rights. It would unify disparate peoples. It would reduce the possibility of conflagration between those great powers that had been central drivers in the two devastating world wars we have seen. Economic union, as opposed to this more general union, was a critical part of that vision. And the euro, a single currency that would be used within and across these separate individually powerful sovereign states would bring about monetary union to consolidate a single market across all of Europe. Now, as you all know, in the event, not all states in the European Union signed up on the euro, just as some states using the euro are actually not even members of the European Union. Since then, notably since the 2008 global financial crisis and the subsequent sovereign debt crises that we have seen across a number of these Eurozone member states. For some observers, these events have come to be sobering ones that suggested that European monetary integration might have been either overly hasty or actually altogether inappropriate. My Nobel Prize winning colleague, Chris Pisaridis, here in the economics department, recently announced the euro to be holding back growth and job creation. And the euro was dividing Europe. Now, my name is Danny Kwa. I'm delighted to be chair of this evening's event. As usual at LSE, we urge you to tweet as the event unfolds, but we also ask that you keep your phones on silent so that you don't disrupt the flow of conversation up here. As you can see from the screen, the hashtag here is LSE Euro. The order of business tonight is that each of our two speakers will speak for 15 minutes. After that time, I will ask for a five-minute response from the each of them. 
I expect there will be storm and fury. But if Paul and George will then allow a respite from their going at each other, I will then invite the audience to join in and participate in this discussion for a Q&A session. Now turning to our speakers, Paul Donovan, who I hope will begin the event, is Managing Director of Global Economics at UBS. In that role, he formulates and he presents the view of UBS on the global economy. In doing this, he orchestrates the bank's resources worldwide. Paul appears regularly in the media to describe the results of this analysis and to help the rest of us understand what's going on in the world. Now, besides his busy day job, Paul also advises the East London Business Alliance, and he is co-founder of the Peter Culverhouse Memorial Fund, an initiative to raise money for cancer research and for patient care. George Magnus is our second speaker. He is Senior Economic Advisor also at UBS. Many in this audience will also know him from other things that he does. How, through the course of the 2008 global financial crisis, he uniquely helped explain and identify critical inflection points in that development. But George has also long provided expertise on longer-term economic developments. He early on took up the policy challenge in the global economy of having to deal with the world rapidly becoming old. More recently, he has also set down provocative views on the prospects for emerging markets in the global economy. I will now turn to Paul to begin the event, but if in the second or two before that, if you could help me welcome the two speakers to LSE this evening. Uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much for uh, braving the transport difficulties this evening. Um, before looking at whether the euro should survive, I think we have to at least acknowledge there is a question as to whether the, sh the euro should exist in the first place. And the answer to that is, I think, easier. Of course, it should not exist uh, in its current form. The euro as it's currently constructed is unworkable and is patently not working. Uh, and this is something that economists have been arguing for a fairly considerable period of time. Indeed, in a rare moment of unity, there is a piece of research with both my name and George's name on it, arguing from, uh, 2000, that's from 1994 that the euro as it is currently constructed will not work in economic terms. But that's not the same thing as necessarily saying that the euro, now that we've got it, should not survive. Unfortunately, and this has always been the problem with monetary unions, once you've created the thing, going back and unwinding it becomes enormously costly in both economic and political terms, and as a consequence of that, ultimately, I think, in social terms as well. 
The fact that the euro is a, a badly functioning monetary union combined with the global financial crisis of 2008 onwards is undoubtedly very painful and is creating a number of challenges ahead. But that doesn't mean, I think, that we need to abandon the euro. What it means is we need to make the euro work better in order to defend against the rise of extremism, the social consequences that we're seeing at the moment. The extremism that is coming in in Europe is, I think, worrying. If we look across any number of countries, uh, extreme parties, uh, either on the left or on the right, are now polling uh, over 20% of the vote. By extreme parties, uh, I mean parties which are generally uh, not just opposed to the government, but opposed to the current system of government and the way of doing things. I would argue that this rise of extremism is not itself directly a consequence of the euro or anything like. I would argue that what we are seeing is the consequence of a global phenomenon over the course of the last 25 or 30 years, namely the increase in income inequality. In the opening years of the euro's existence, the euro did exactly what it was supposed to do. If you look at which countries benefited under the euro uh, from the period of 1999 to 2008, one of the biggest beneficiaries was Greece. Uh, along with uh, countries like Portugal and Spain, these countries saw a rise in real disposable income. In Germany, real disposable income fell. This is actually a good thing because it shows the monetary union in relatively calm circumstances was doing what it was supposed to and basically transferring wealth from the higher income to the lower income in the European empire. The problem was the low-income people tended to speak the same language and live in the same country, and the high-income people also spoke the same language and lived in the same country, and nationalism started to creep in as the Germans resented their wealth being used to raise the living standards of the Greeks. This continued until 2008, when a new and more universal phenomenon hit the Eurozone. With the onset of the global financial crisis, we saw real disposable income fall in almost every single country in the euro area, the notable exception being Germany. Now, that's quite challenging, but what made it a lot worse was the fact that we saw not only falling real incomes, we saw an increase in income inequality. And as we all know the middle class can probably just about cope with falling incomes. But falling incomes when your next-door neighbour is doing better than you are is completely unacceptable. The rise in income inequality has therefore led to a politics of resentment, and I would argue a politics of scapegoating within the euro area and indeed elsewhere. This has meant that we have seen a desire to blame someone or something for the combination of falling incomes and increased income inequality. And what has come out of that is a desire to blame the foreigner. 
Traditionally, this is a very easy way of scapegoating, external uh, to your society, in some way alien, and easy to blame for stealing your job, uh, unfair exchange rate practices leading to trade imbalances, uh, or indeed coming over and living off of your welfare state. It is, however, I think very important to stress that this anti-foreigner, anti-immigration movement that is at the heart of the extremism in Europe we see today is not just European in its nature. The Tea Party in the United States is not that dissimilar in some of its aims from the Front National in France. In Switzerland this weekend, the anti-immigration referendum is going to be held and the position is still very much in the balance as to which side is likely to win. This is not a phenomenon of the Eurozone. It is, I think, a phenomenon of the growth of income inequality combined with a weaker economic environment. What has made it worse, I think, in the last few years is the fact that not only have we had income inequality, but people are a lot more aware of it. Over the last 15 or 20 years, consumers have been able to indulge in the most powerful of hallucinogenic drugs, consumer credit. Credit, of course, is a wonderful thing. It allows us to buy things we don't need with money we don't have. And it generates consumption equality at a time of income inequality. What the financial credit crisis did was strip away that hallucinogen of credit and reveal the full extent of income inequality that had been building for the previous 15 years. And that has made the current problem, I think, a little more acute. The next question, I think, then, is, well, if we're facing extremism, if we're facing income inequalities, if we're facing economic growth problems, would leaving the euro, would breaking up the euro, in some way help the situation? I am very sceptical about the argument that leaving the euro would actually bring benefits, reverse this rise of extremism, and sort out economies. I think it is founded on a rather touching faith in the ability of floating exchange rates to actually do something in the real world, in spite of nearly 40 years of evidence to the contrary. Just devaluing your currency doesn't make you automatically competitive overnight. A whole lot of other changes need to go on to restore competitiveness. It may ease the burden somewhat, but it requires a strength of political will that is all too often lacking. Politicians, political leaders like currencies, like flexibility, because currencies are a nice, simple idea, and political leaders tend to like nice, simple ideas. Devalue the currency and everything will be good. Look, I made the currency devalue, therefore vote for me. Unfortunately, the reality is not nearly so clear-cut. We would, of course, also have monetary policy, interest rate flexibility, outside of the Eurozone. But there, too, there are questions to be asked. Does having interest rate flexibility actually lower your cost of borrowing? If you have effectively defaulted on your national debt, defaulted on your corporate debt, and have to rebuild credibility, we have to assume that for many years, some kind of risk premium would be built in to the cost of borrowing in any country that chose to exit the euro. 
I think that the credit risk that comes from exiting the euro would increase real rates substantially and present a very significant challenge to the integrity of any country that tried to leave the euro. The banking system would be in chaos. The idea that international trade could somehow flourish rather overlooks the fact that if you want to engage in international trade, somebody has to provide you with trade finance. Quite why anyone in their right mind would provide a country with trade finance when that country has just defaulted on its government debt, its corporate debt, and abandoned the currency of its choice is, I'm afraid, beyond me. The net result, I think, is further economic disruption, and within that further economic disruption, even greater economic tensions and social disruption. It's worth noting that with the possible exception of the temporary fragmentation of the United States Monetary Union in 1933, no monetary union in the 20th century broke up without there being either civil war or a rise of political extremism in the aftermath of the monetary union collapse. Does staying in avoid these problems? Well, it avoids some of the extreme problems, but it doesn't actually help. We can't delude ourselves into believing that the euro can carry on as it is. That is simply not plausible, I think. But I actually would view the rise of extremism as creating one, and only one, positive benefit. I think the rise of extremism is scaring political leaders in Europe. And what I am hoping we see is something that we saw in several countries in the 1920s and the 1930s, that as extremism rises, the moderates start to cooperate better with one another in order to bolster the strength of the institutions and to make, in this instance, the euro work better. Now, I'm not talking about Hollande and Sarkozy suddenly embracing one another and working alongside each other. That, I think, is implausible. But having Hollande work with Merkel would actually be quite helpful. And I think that the rise of extremism, and in particular the results of the forthcoming uh, European parliamentary elections, may actually encourage moderate political leaders in the euro area to start to look to make the changes to the institutions that would make the euro work better. In particular to look for fiscal transfers uh, in a way that do not depend on nationalism but do uh, allow a more equitable share of growth within the Eurozone, and to look at a better functioning banking system, which means a single banking system, not 18 different banking systems under one central bank. These transfers, I think, would bring benefits to the Eurozone as a whole. We have to get away from the idea that this is Germany paying. Chancellor Merkel is very keen on this as a concept, but it's simply not true. I think it is worthwhile pointing out, if we had had a proper monetary union, one that had been designed by economists, not by politicians late at night in Maastricht, if we had had fiscal union alongside monetary union, Germany would have been a net beneficiary of fiscal aid for the first 10 years of the euro. If we can get that message across, then I think the euro can survive, should survive, and will hopefully be able to defeat the challenge of political extremism. Thanks very much.
Good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, <clears throat> similarly uh, to Paul, uh, well done for braving the weather and the tube strike. Uh, so we're going to do a little bit of politics, a little bit of economics, a little bit of philosophy, um, roughly in that order. Uh, so should the euro survive? Uh, I think throughout the crisis, I've always thought that it... I should say, I've not always thought that or confident that it would. I think when Draghi came to the European Central Bank, I thought that it could. Uh, and I think deep down, I always thought that it should until quite recently. And so this debate uh, really puts the focus on the should question uh, by, by establishing the context about economics in an era of political extremism. Although we might just as easily say economics as a cause of political extremism which actually, to me, makes, um, uh, brings the subject matter home a little bit more clearly. Because if we think about Europe's political economy and the choices being made uh, and what the consequences are um, on political thinking, uh, specifically a more nationalistic and, uh, and uh, divisive political agenda, then we should perhaps at least ask the question, which we are, about whether the euro, at least as it's currently constituted, deserves to survive. So there's lots of talk about uh, political extremism, of course. Um, Paul's eloquently kind of introduced the topic. Uh, you, could, you might wonder sometimes whether it's all a little bit exaggerated. There's been a lot of social unrest uh, across the euro universe. Um, and, and lots of social unrest has contributed to no confidence votes in parliaments uh, which have been lost to early elections in other countries to the abandonment of policies in uh, some other countries but there's only one example actually where mass political protest has resulted in the resignation and defeat um, of a government and that was in Portugal in March 2011 when uh, Prime Minister José Socrates had to resign in the face of mass demonstrations. Um, and given the uh, debate about austerity and everything that Europeans have been through, it's kind of curious in a way. Sometimes I have to pinch myself and think, well, why hasn't there been more uh, anti-European um, uh, sentiment? Um, because most of the unrest, such as it is, has really been targeted against national governments. There was a Pew survey of public opinion that was published last year, uh, which showed inevitably that there were large majorities in Spain, Italy and Greece, uh, much larger than in Northern Europe, who were opposed uh, to what their governments were doing so far as the economy was concerned and unemployment was too high and the system favoured you know, the rich in society too much. But actually, there were large majorities in these three Mediterranean countries and in Northern European countries, pretty comparable actually, all criticising their governments for the handling of the euro crisis much, much more than they criticised Europe as such. In fact, I think in Italy, the uh, percentage of respondents saying that they uh, blamed Europe for Italy's kind of predicament was only about 35%. And throughout the crisis, across the eurozone, uh, opinion polls have suggested that around 60-65% approval of the euro uh, throughout. So clearly, Europeans don't want to get rid of their uh, currency, certainly not at this point. Why? Well, uh, there could be many reasons that you could, uh, you could suggest. One may be that, in general, in Europe, there is pretty high level of median household wealth. It's roughly about €190,000. 
Um, income inequality, which Paul has kind of spoken about in, uh, already, actually in most European countries, it's quite low. I mean, it's been widening, but it's quite low relative to the UK, US, uh, and a lot of emerging countries as well, uh, as measured by Gini coefficients and so on. Uh, there are broad-based and pretty comprehensive welfare systems in situ. Um, and actually, for all the talk, and I'm not kind of belittling it, but for all the talk of you know, 40 50% rates of youth unemployment, which of course is shocking, uh, the 15 to 24-year-old age cohort is only about 10% of European uh, population. It's a third smaller than it was about 25 years ago as a share of the population. And, of course, the demographic means that that proportion of the population is declining. It's not to excuse it. It's not to say it's defensible in any shape or form. Merely that it may be one reason why the eruption of anti-European um, extremism um, has been, relatively speaking, limited. Okay, that's the one kind of argument or side of the ledger. On the other side of that ledger, it is also true that that Pew survey, that same Pew survey, showed large majorities of respondents uh, insisting that economic integration in Europe has gone as far as they were happy with. Um, there's no question, uh, as we've already heard, about the rise in populism and of political movements which are resulting in more nationalistic policies and influencing incumbent governments to move that way. Um, and, of course, uh, as Paul's already said, you know, we shall see what uh, the European elections in the European parliamentary elections in May result in, particularly of interest now in the wake of uh, this rather, um, uh, I was going to say bizarre, but it's predictable statements from Geert Wilders in the Netherlands today, um, uh, for which you can read about in the papers tomorrow, I'm sure. Um, and uh, finally, it's also quite clear that uh, disaffection with national and European elites is a major problem. In fact, I would argue, really, that although the, the market-based threat uh, to the existence of the euro has receded, uh, of course, during the last six to 12 months, um, we might now well be moving into a new phase where political um, or politics basically dictate outcomes which were too risky almost for people to contemplate and which were resisted quite strongly when the financial crisis was more acute. It's well known, uh, well, it's well known, I'm saying like it happens every time, but it is widely recognised that when countries finally go through the pain of austerity and start generating primary surpluses on their fiscal accounts is when they politically become rather more awkward and uh, difficult to, to negotiate with. The argument about anti-elite sentiment, I'm sure you, uh, many of you will have seen Martin Wolf's rather splendid article in the Financial Times last month, uh, where he basically talked about elites having fundamentally misunderstood uh, the co consequences of uh, their policies leading up to and through the crisis of 2008, um, where he talked about um, um, uh, uh, elites having sort of become increasingly plutocratic and divorced from their citizenships or citizens, uh, and with two particular uh, uh, kind of pointers towards the European situation. He, he made the point that the economic crisis was gradually becoming more and more a constitutional and legit legitimacy and populism crisis uh, as power was accruing in unaccountable fashion to Germany and to the Troika and other creditor countries. Um, and that um, uh, people were increasingly becoming restive about the fact that the elites had basically gone beyond the point where the euro had become uh, kind of a symbol of, of practical and mutual integration 
and shared um, uh, sovereignty uh, to embrace what he called the fate of their money. Now, I thought about that actually quite a lot because actually the phrase wasn't, um, it doesn't kind of come to life very easily. But actually, um, it's quite important, I think, um, about how people feel that their money is being managed or mismanaged, especially when it isn't theirs in the first place. Okay? It's one thing to talk about what the Bank of England or the government is doing in this country with monetary policy and the, uh, the credibility of the pound. But, of course, the euro is still, for a lot of Europeans, um, kind of a strange kind of artifact. And it reminded me, really, of something that I came across um, uh, in other work um, quite recently, uh, based on a manuscript that was written by Joseph Schumpeter in the 1920s called Das Wesen des Geldes, which basically, basically translates as the essence or the nature of money. And I'm just going to read you out this very short quote. Um, the often passionate, always great interest that is paid to the practical questions of the monetary system and the value of money can only be explained by the fact that the monetary system of a people reflects all that that people wants, does, endures, is, and that simultaneously the monetary system of a people exercises a significant influence upon its economic activity and its destiny in general. I think that's pretty powerful stuff because it basically goes to the heart, really, of the notion of control and creation of money and how it's linked to ideas of nationhood and sovereignty. Now, once you see the economic problem in this way, rather than through the narrow, if important, way of competitiveness and labor costs and you know, public debt and so on, I mean, these things obviously are really important, but actually, if you look at the kind of the, the broader perspective about money and its political economy implications... Um, you can see this is not just about debtor countries having to kind of adjust uh, to a new kind of reality, but about whether a Europe with a newly powerful Germany at its heart can reconcile the different interests and destinies of disparate peoples under a single currency. This is not a new problem. This has been going on in Europe for quite some time um, and, and never has actually been satisfactorily addressed uh, in, in perpetuity. Because the euro, of course, after all, is designed to break that link between sovereignty and national money and transfer the powers and privileges conferred by having your own currency to European entities uh, or a single kind of European uh, structure. So as things stand today, I worry a lot that this evolutionary process has stalled and not without acrimony between northern creditors and southern debtors between left and right, and between haves and have-nots. Uh, so if the status quo doesn't change, um, growth remains anemic, unemployment remains high, economic expectations low, banking systems flawed, it's not impossible, I don't think, that in some countries people may yet have the debate about whether it is worth the candle actually to stay in and submit to an extended period of depression-like economic conditions, or whether there might be a more simple solution. It actually isn't simple, as Paul has laid out, but that doesn't people stop people having that debate. 
What is to be done? I think we all understand basically what the list of uh, things is to be done. It has to do with mutual, more symmetric economic adjustment. It has to do with the banking union, which is not the banking union that they agreed last December, but it's one that's based on joint liabilities uh, for uh, a resolution regime for the banking system and deposit insurance. It has to do with debt debt restructurings and uh, bigger ESM and euro bonds and all the things that I think we've kind of exhausted and analysed at nauseam. What fundamentally that's all about, really, is about symmetric adjustment between creditor countries and debtor countries. And these issues are, in my opinion, shaping the wedge that is formed between creditors and debtors, that they cannot agree about which way to go forward, or only to go forward in incremental ways or in in kind of diluted ways, which don't really solve Europe's fundamental problems. We can understand very easily why Germans, for example, and other Northern European citizens have deep reservations about being bounced into a transfer union where they're going to be signing open-ended checks. Uh, But we can also understand the sensitivities of uh, their southern neighbours that they should not be expected to shoulder the burden of adjustment uh, to a crisis in which it took two to tango after all. It was not a sovereign crisis as we've been, as the propaganda would kind of make it, made it out to be. It was a balance of payments crisis. And once you start seeing it in those terms, it establishes different responsibilities to both creditors and to debtors. So this wedge between North and South actually is a little bit more nuanced than it sometimes looks. You know, there's a banking crisis going on in Slovenia, which has caused a kind of an upsurge in sentiment. The Dutch obviously have very strong views of their own as well about deflation in, in their own country and, and the implications for them. But in the end, I think that Europe's only choice is for creditors and debtors to integrate more or to fragment further. It's a sort of a scaled-down version of Danny Roderick's uh, famous globalization trilemma, which he articulated in 2007, uh, which is still worth a good read. Uh, In other words, you can have national sovereignty, or you may want national sovereignty, you may want democratic government, and you may want deep economic integration, but you can only have, at best, two of those three, uh, unless you have a very accepted and trusted institutional setup at the heart of your governance system. So without those institutions or that type of institution, and the absence of which, of course, was uh, made clear by the euro crisis, uh, Europe has to choose two. And my concern, really, is that deep economic integration is increasingly becoming uh, the weakest link. So, in conclusion, should the euro survive? I don't think anybody believes that question uh, has relevance on a time frame that's important to financial markets. It's, uh, it's much further out than the next three, six, nine months. Um, uh, and I think that often we underestimate the degree to which Europe can muddle through. It's probably going to carry on muddling through for quite some time. But if symmetric adjustment, as I've outlined it, can't be, is not possible, If debtor countries can't turn the tables on Germany and the northern European countries, somehow, Hollande was the great hope, but that's kind of been dashed, really. If the consequences of a kind of Teutonic integration prove to be too much for some countries, then I think those countries should be allowed to leave the euro system, not least for fear of the political consequences for them of staying in and by implication, therefore, to the rest of Europe. Thank you.
Okay. Now, two speakers have laid out their positions. There is, in my interpretation, mixed optimism and pessimism along different dimensions. Uh, for Paul, there's a reliance on the resurgence of the moderates, that when things get bad enough, the moderates will realize the trouble that we will all be in if they do not grasp the nettle and once again assert a leadership that's sorely needed. For George, he wants to draw on a symmetric realignment, a symmetric adjustment, he calls it, of different powers, different entrenched vested interests. But while the two of them are clear about the problems that we face today, both of them also express an optimism about how we might move forwards. With that, uh, perhaps I can now invite Paul to begin in a response to what George has said, or more generally. Please. Uh, yeah, you Thank you. Um, so I find myself in the uncomfortable position of agreeing with uh, quite a lot of what George says, um, which is never a good sign. Um, I uh, do believe um, that more integration is required. I do believe um, that we need to address the imbalances that continue to exist uh, within societies and between countries within the Eurozone to make the Euro viable. I think I would be optimistic about the ability for that to happen over the course of the next uh, five years, let us say. What I think we need to see is not a rebalancing of Europe as such. I think if we, if we focus on trying to rebalance economies, it's too big picture, and it's not going to happen. What we need to do is put in place the framework that allows rebalancing to creep up on us, almost. And that, after all, is, is what most monetary unions have. Fiscal union subtly rebalances um, between the different states of the United States, for example. You know, Arkansas has been a net beneficiary of federal aid pretty much every single year since 1933, but people in California don't tend to complain too much uh, about the fact that their tax dollars are being siphoned off to support um, uh, lifestyles in the Deep South. Why? Because it's, it's a gradual process of integration behind the scenes. If we can put in place the framework over the next few years then we can get the rebalancing without any need for an explosive event, and more importantly, without any need for taxpayers to necessarily fully understand what is happening. I would also suggest, though, that, that whilst I think the, the, the euro does survive, um, I think now is actually a very critical juncture uh, in terms of the euro's continued existence, that we actually do need the decisions to be taken now. The Eurozone banking system cannot possibly carry on as it is. It has to be made to work better. We can't, as we have seen in Greece, have the poorest in Greece see their real incomes fall 40% over a six-year period and expect that to be just acceptable over the medium term. It's too great a difference in terms of, of income disparities. 
I would also contend that the demographics, which is a subject George knows extraordinarily well, the demographics of the Eurozone are such that we have to be looking for labour mobility. We have to get away from the fear of migration because migration is the only way that some of the northern European countries are going to be able to achieve economic growth in the medium term. Uh, and finally, I think uh, that the euro needs to be paying attention to integrating better now because it's coming at a, a juncture when, I believe, globalization is collapsing. Not the globalization of trade. Uh, trade globalization is basically static now. But what we have seen over the course of the, of the financial crisis is a collapse in the globalization of capital. And that means that as we move to a more parochial environment for investing, for financing, we have to be more parochial in considering debtors and creditors. The euro has to look to itself for its own funding across the board. Uh, and that means, I think, that the euro has to address the debtor-creditor issues uh, far more quickly uh, than uh, perhaps George was suggesting. So I think that this is uh, a very critical juncture. In particular, uh, the, the extremism, uh, the collapse of globalization of capital flow, uh, the parochialization of creditor and debtor issues, um, and the demographics of Europe are coming together to force change on Europe uh, as we look forward. I do agree uh, that currencies are very often intimately bound up um, with... Uh, concepts of nationality uh, and so forth, though perhaps less so than they have been in the past. Um, you know, in the modern world, is you know, the, the currency of a country the bit of paper that you hold, or is it an American Express card? In a virtual world, it's certainly not a Bitcoin, which I don't consider a currency, but it is, I think, an Amex or a Visa. And in that sense, perhaps a lot of the, the emotional concepts are mitigated, something we already see in the Nordic countries where actually finding cash in circulation is quite a struggle a lot of the time. Uh, plastic and electronic money has all but uh, reduced the day-to-day -day use of currency as such. The emotional concepts around currency, monetary unions, and so on, I think, will persist. Uh, I think that we have to uh, acknowledge that. But I think they can be diminished, and a proper focus on the economic benefits of a more integrated euro area um, will hopefully allow the euro to survive, but it must change. I think of that, George and I can agree. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm sympathetic to um, Paul's view that um, Europeans, your European citizens, share uh, a, a lot of common issues with, um, uh, well, Brits, Americans, and others. So it's, some things are not uniquely European. So the issue of uh, fairness, equity, um, rich poor gap income inequality all this kind of thing I think he, clearly the, these are common issues a lot of it has to do with the kind of consequences of globalization a lot of it has to do with rapidly changing technology and uh, the implications that that in itself is having for labor markets and labor market structures and compensation patterns and so on um, 
So yes to all of that. Um, but I think that it's for me that's kind of not enough when we when we're kind of trying to assess what's going on or, or how to, to understand what's driving Europe and where it's going. Because I think there is quite a strong political dimension both here, let's say, in this country and in the United States, that's built on top of that, and we all know that, we can read it every day. And I think the same is true in Europe with the complication, actually, that, of course, Europeans are, or many Europeans, are having decisions made about their future and their, how their countries are run, how their governments are run, how their societies are being changed decisions made by unelected representatives. It's the, you know, the proverbial democratic deficit and, and speaks to the point that I made earlier about power accruing to, uh, in unaccountable fashion to either Germany directly. I mean, this is not an anti-German rant, by the way. This is just the reality of what happens when a strong, dominant country basically finds itself in a position where it's the paymaster, which is uh, what's happened to, to Germany. Um, and to the Troika, uh, which uh, is, as you know, bitterly resented um, in a number of countries, for, um, particularly in Greece, and um, uh, although Italy isn't kind of a, in a Troika program, I and mean, a lot of people in Italy are kind of viscerally opposed to, um, to the influence which the Troika has. So it's this kind of political um, issue, the, the, the political context within Europe, and of course the geopolitical context of, of a rising Germany within the European context, which I think is really, really difficult to um, address. I mean, ideally, you would want to basically lock everybody in a room and say, you're not coming out until you've managed to agree how to share responsibilities for you know, these particular kinds of issues and, and policies. Of course, that's kind of not the way that politics works. So it is going to take something um, to get, I think, um, either the debtor countries to um, coalesce around a kind of a common agenda where they effectively then threaten um, Germany with, uh, you know, we're going to leave. I mean, it's kind of difficult to do that when 60% of your country say they we want to stay in. So you've actually got to be able to demonstrate that it's a viable threat. Um, so either the debtors will basically coalesce around a common agenda and, uh, and, and try to turn the table on, on Germany and Get a, we get a more kind of a better equilibrium in terms of decision making, or uh, or they won't be able to do that. And then what worries me is that while I understand and I have a lot of sympathy with what Germans feel about their own position and role within the European uh, eurozone, if if they can't change their mindset about what that involves and what that means, then what worries me about that is that it will condemn uh, a lot of Europe to years and years of no hope. I mean, we can talk about, you know, a bit of a kind of a cyclical recovery going on in the European economy in 2014. And, you know, Spain is now a little bit more competitive. Italy isn't. Greece is running a primary surplus, but deep down the country is badly uh, flawed and wounded. Um, and I just worry that that will erupt in a resentment which uh, may be more damaging. Um, and preemptively, it might be a good idea quote-unquote, um, for Europe to basically have a kind of an escape mechanism which may be open to countries that basically can't stand the heat. Uh, so that's my kind of pitch, really, is that the politics is just... It may be intractable. I mean, I hope, with Paul, that you know, common sense prevails and we avoid that kind of uh, scenario, but actually it may not be possible. <laughs> 
Okay, thank you, Paul and George. Now I'm going to turn over to the audience for questions. While you are gathering yourselves up for that, I wonder if I could get the speakers to clarify a point that um, I think you've gone over, but that um, seems not to have been you know, um, brought out as much as, as it might have. The two of you describe political extremism in a variety of ways. One picture that many people, a casual observer, has in mind when they think about political extremism is the rise of the extreme right and left within specific member states. Now, the two of you do talk about that, but you also very quickly talk about nationalism and feelings across countries and the disparity between the rich north and the poor south. It strikes me that the two of these, the t these two kinds of extremism or, or sentiment have quite different roots and have, might have quite different manifestations. George, you, um, you rather diminished or you know, uh, suggested that political extremism within countries might not be as big a deal because you said there's only been one situation where demonstrations led to a government in Europe actually, um, actually turning over. And that for you, you know, when we look at high youth unemployment, you say, well, that's actually a very small fraction of the population. So what, is, you know, what, what do you think that political extremism of these different kinds play as big a role as, as they do? And if it's a cross-country phenomenon, what does Europe do when the rest of the world becomes richer than Europe? Um, yeah, well, I... Uh, sorry. Um, yeah, it's, it's a good point. The, the, I suppose what, what I'm perplexed about, really, is, in a way, is, is really why there hasn't been more um, resistance to, you know, the economic programs... Um, and so I'm just trying to find or uh, struggle to find kind of explanations for, for why that may be so. Uh, I must add, you know, without trying to excuse it at all, I just think that, you know, it's, it's possible that it, it's harder. I mean, although, you know, there's a lot of anti-immigrant feeling and there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, anti-integration feeling. I mean, those are kind of two prominent ways in which people express uh, strong views and I think you know, we will see that on, on full display in, in the uh, May parliamentary elections for the European Parliament um, it, it, it's not gone, uh, I mean it's, it's kind of bad enough but it actually hasn't gone beyond that into uh, kind of revolutionary you know kind of overthrow of governments apart from that kind of one example and um, uh, I'm not saying that I'm taking satisfaction from that. I just think that it's curious in a way that it hasn't escalated more. But I'm, I'm also not complacent about the fact that that means it's not going to happen. Um, and I think um, for, for one or several reasons, we need to be very vigilant about it. One is the example that you mentioned is that actually if um, Europe struggles over the next five years, seven years, whilst... Um, uh, you know, other countries. Uh, I mean, it's it's possible that the United States gradually is putting some blue water between the financial crisis and its own future. I mean, it's it's a struggle, but it's possible that that's happening. It's possible 
I'm not really sure how much I believe that, that the UK might be doing the same thing. Um, but, um, but at least, you know, the, the, um, the, 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 the economic constraints in Europe, in the euro area, seem to be that much heavier, I think. Um, and it's partly a question because, I think, because of the kind of the terms of, you know, the kind of what I call the Teutonic uh, kind of pact, as it were, in terms of monetary union. Um, and, and I think that that's what worries me is actually is that once countries have been through the pain as they have done now, um, that uh, they will say, well, we've kind of how much worse can it get, you know? And why do we have to keep exec- taking you know orders as it were from from outside? And I think that's potentially quite dangerous. And I think um, I I would suggest that. One of the reasons why there is a perhaps a limit to uh, extremism in the form of the extreme parties, at least, um, is that they tend to be fairly single-issue protest parties. Um, uh, the UK Independence Party, goodness knows, is an example of that. It, it's not noted for its coherence, um, uh, generally speaking. And it's a single-issue party. The interesting problem, I think, is that in a lot of countries... The single issue is immigration, but the party is anti-immigration, anti-Europe as well. Uh, And that's very much the case if you look at the support levels, why people are supporting these parties. They're supporting on an anti-immigration ticket, which is the natural lashing out that we often get in in economic downturns, but somewhat more uh, focused in the situation. Um, In terms of the the extremist threat and, and whether this is something where people say, well, how much worse could it get? The thing is that it, it can always get a lot worse, and as long as that's clearly articulated, you know, the, the break that is caused by leaving the euro would make things substantially worse for most countries involved, and that, that is, is the message that needs to get across. Back in 2008, I don't think that was understood. Uh, I'm certain it wasn't understood in Germany. Um, and it wasn't widely understood in, in a number of countries in the euro area. It was only as that was articulated in 2008 and 2009 about the potential extent of the cost that you actually then started to get the moderate centre uh, working together a little bit more uh, closely. Um, to touch just briefly on, on George's point about the, the, the democratic deficit, I, I agree, and I think this is, this is the problem of scapegoating. The issue in the Eurozone is that the, the democratic deficit is, is visible in the form of an alien external uh, entity, um, uh, be that the ECB or the Troika. Um, but it's not actually that unusual. I mean, the, the democratic deficit has been piling up for years in an economic sense. I mean, central banks have been made independent over the last uh, two decades, and frankly, with with very good reason. Um, You don't want politicians anywhere near an economy. Only economists are qualified to run economies. Um, In addition, though, we have whole swathes. I mean, the social security system in most countries nowadays is not a democratic process. It's all index-linked. It's controlled by you know, whichever statistician is compiling your CPA, CPI calculation. But it's my statistician. Well, this is the, this is the problem, I think. That the, the one thing in the Eurozone is that the, it is this external issue. But I don't think we have a larger democratic deficit in the Eurozone than we do in the United States or the United Kingdom. It's just it speaks with a slightly different accent. Okay. <coughs> okay. Um, So turning over to the question and answer part of this, if I could just ask you to 
when I call on you, stand up, identify yourself and your affiliation if you wish, you know that this is being recorded. Um, by all means, say a few sentences to set a context for your question, but please don't deliver your own lecture. <laughs> Ask your question, and then the question is to the panel of the two speakers here. You do not need to say one of them or the other because we're all talking about the same thing here. What I would like to do is take three or four questions and then set the two of you on them. So first, the gentleman in the T-shirt. Uh, if you could wait a second while that comes around. Hello. Yeah, my name is Jaime. I'm from uh, Spain, and I study here at LSE. Um, the question is regarding the centralization of the, of the banking system and of the whole of the monetary policy for the EU. Will it be support, uh, well supported by a centralized government? Will that help um, towards the objectives of that centralization? So if we go in, we go all in, basically. Thank you. Uh, gentleman over there, the, the one behind, and then you're in front. Hello, uh, <clears throat> I'm Andres Kasparatos. Uh, I'm from Lithuania, where Euro should be adopted in the next year. And um, I'd like to question uh, probably two very similar situations we had in Europe uh, in the last five years. So we had one country in crisis, that is Greece, where referendums were prohibited um, uh, when they had this crisis. Um, obviously, they are in the EU and they have Euro. And we have other country, well, we can say in Europe, probably Iceland, where, uh, which is not in the European Union, and they don't have Euro, but they had referendums, you know, they had crisis, they had a few referendums, and uh, which is a uh, happier place to live, probably, for a, a, a usual average citizen. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, let me hold you in reserve. I want to come around spatially this first. So, gentlemen in the green... Hi, John Burton, LSE alumnus. Uh, Paul Donovan, you uh, optimistically expressed the view that uh, perhaps a, f a new framework, probably fiscal, can be put into process behind the scenes without taxpayers fully understanding, probably German taxpayers, Northern taxpayers, fully understanding what's going on. Isn't the problem then about which both of you have spoken is that people have sort of wised up to this in the European Union. Haven't they got a bit tired of the old EU strategy of having the wool pulled over their eyes time and time again about what's really going on? Thank you. So uh, why don't we begin with Paul and then George. Now we'll come around to the other questions. Um, on the issue of a centralised banking system... Uh, you could go all out for a central government. Um, uh, that's rather more ambitious than I think uh, is necessary. Um, I think ultimately you can, when we're talking about banking union, the United States can serve as something of, uh, of a model. That you know, the, the current structure of the U.S. banking system came in after the collapse of the U.S. monetary union in 1933, where you create effectively a two-tier system. And I think this is eventually what we'll end up with, where you have a federal system and then you have a series of, in the US, state-based banks, uh, in, in the Eurozone, obviously, national-based banks. But you have an element of a federal system. And that, of course, facilitates transfers. You know, the, the United Kingdom is, at least for the moment, a monetary union. Uh, we have you know, Royal Bank of Scotland transferring savings from Yorkshire to Surrey or wherever, and nobody bats an eyelid. 
That's where you need to get to in, in Europe. I don't want there to be German banks or French banks in the future. I want Santander Credit Agricole Deutsche Group to be you know, a bank in the Eurozone moving money uh, across boundaries. I think to go full out for a, a single government is unnecessary. To go out for some kind of centralized supervision is necessary in that situation. So it doesn't have to be a government, but you do need, uh, you do need something. Um, in terms of the other two questions, I mean, I think they, they touch at a, a similar issue, which is, you know, the, the, the issue about how much should, should the ordinary population be involved in the minutiae of running something like a monetary union. I personally believe that the monetary union was somewhat missold uh, in the first place. It was presented, and, and certainly in the, a lot of the debate in the UK in the 90s, was presented as a fixed exchange rate system. Uh, it'll be cheaper to go on holiday. You wouldn't have to change money every time you go abroad. Um, and, of course, it's not a fixed exchange rate system. It's a common monetary system, which is very, very different. Um, it is, however, an extraordinary, extraordinarily complex system. Uh, and whilst I am a firm believer in the concept of democracy, I'm not necessarily a firm believer in the concept of direct democracy, uh, despite working for a Swiss organization. Um, because I think that there are some systems which are too complicated to be summarized in three bullet points on CNBC or in an editorial in the Daily Mail. Um, in fact, most uh, concepts are too difficult to be summarized in an editorial in the Daily Mail. Um, and I think that this is actually a, a, one of those areas where the complexities of dealing with this, going to the German taxpayers and saying, look, you'd have been a beneficiary for the first 10 years of the euro, and in five years' time it may all go horribly wrong in the German economy and you'll be a beneficiary again. It's a very difficult story to sell um, in something which is then voted on in a yes-no vote as with a referendum. So I'm, I'm not against democracy. I think that the complexities of the euro, though, require representative democracy uh, to negotiate that within some kind of federal structure. Um, and that, I think, has to be the optimal outcome. Thanks. Yeah. Um, well, to take the, the banking uh, question first, I don't think you'd have to have a central government to make a banking union work. Um, I mean, if you remember, actually, last year, um, nobody had been talking about banking union until about February or March of 2013. And suddenly it was like, how can we survive without a banking union? And, and I think this was basically um, dreamt, not dreamt up. I mean, I think it was kind of hatched in Brussels <clears throat> as a way of substituting for other economic and financial political issues, which I think everybody wanted to kind of keep under the carpet. But, okay, we are where we are now, and we have a banking union, which, as I said in my sort of prepared remarks, actually, um, doesn't really kind of cut the mustard. So you, you've got a single supervisory mechanism now, which is basically the European Central Bank is going to supervise the most important, you know, banks, um, and it's doing a review of the bank's assets this year. Uh, but actually, that's almost the least important part of what I think they should have been doing in terms of sequencing. What they should also have agreed right at the outset is about how they were going to structure what's called the SRM, which is a single resolution mechanism, so that you have an entity which is basically going to have the authority and the, the brief, as it were, and the resources to be able to shut down and merge banks and uh, basically create some kind of coherence 
coherence in the kind of the systemic or the system of, of the European banking system. Um, plus, you need to have a common deposit insurance uh, system, and it all has to be done on the basis of uh, joint liability. Well, that has not been agreed. Why? Because it obviously involves Germans and other creditor countries having to pay more money, which means uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a basically it's a call on the fiscal sovereignty of the country. And actually, the German constitution does not allow the Bundestag to do that. They have to change their constitution to do that. Um, and there's, you know, there are only certain ways in which the government can actually kind of skirt around that issue. So I don't think you need a central government, but you do have to have a properly thought out um, banking union, which the, what they agreed in, in Brussels, I think, in, in November or December last year is not. So we have a banking union, but so what? It's not really going to solve uh, very much um, in terms of breaking the proverbial link between you know, weak balance sheets in the banking system and weak balance sheets in governments. Um, I agree with Paul on the question of representative democracy. I, I think there are obviously, you know, country, it's horses for courses. It, it, somewhere in, you know, in, in different countries, it'll, it'll vary from place to place. There'll be a kind of a line beyond which the, the, the seeding of power to uh, European institutions, you know, may be uh, in contravention of the existing constitution and it is going to have to require, you know, popular votes. So I, I think it's, I don't think the referendum, you know, tool should be wheeled out as frequently as they do in Switzerland, but um, I think there are cases where it can be justified. And, um, yeah, so I think on, on the, uh, you know, are the Europeans tired of being, you know, sold a pup in terms of, or, you know, having all of this, um, you know, kind of political chicanery masked from them and so on and so forth. I mean, that's the problem, isn't it? It's about, I mean, in broad terms, the democratic deficit is, you know, decisions are being made and we have no no way in which, you know, it's not being properly explained. We don't have a say in whether they should be, you know, implemented or should not be implemented. And, um, and we're just kind of bystanders is in an elitist project, which is a million miles away from where we think we as citizens are. That's really dangerous. Um, and I think that was the gist of, you know, Martin Wolf's article about elites. It's well worth having a read if you didn't have read it already. Thank you. Okay, three more questions. So from the gentleman up here. Uh, hi, George. You spoke about the need to um, align interests between different groups, for example, creditors and debtors, um, and that if this can't be done, then um, the need for sort of an exit, uh, an option out of the euro. Um, but in uh, the predecessor, the EMS, one of the things which arguably sort of brought it to its knees was um, the sort of threat of exit from Germany and throwing its weight around to get what it wants. So would perhaps an exit strategy in the euro in its current guise actually push um, creditors and debtors further apart? Thank you. Someone from the middle? Okay, the gentleman in back. Thank you. Hi, uh, my name is Robert Pinchuk. Uh, you spoke very generally about uh, the need for, uh, call it a detente between debtors and creditors, but perhaps you could speak uh, a little more specifically of where or what uh, fair resolution might look like in terms of uh, where they might meet. Thank you. Then a gentleman here who had been waiting from earlier. Thank you. 
Uh, Tristan Carlyle from Central Banking Publications. Uh, just to follow on about the single resolution mechanism, uh, even with the SRM light as it stands, we seem to have reached something of a political impasse with the European Parliament particularly annoyed by the Council for the EU bringing in national governments and letting them reach an agreement. Are you concerned by the fact that national governments seem to be hijacking the process and that European integration could already be stalling again? Okay. And uh, George, do you want to pick up first? Yeah. Uh, fine. Well, it'll be fine. Um, so the question about creditors and debtors, I think, is... Uh, I mean, it's a really good question, actually. Um, um, so just kind of what... What resonated in my mind as you were asking the question was, uh, I think it was the, the Cannes or the Nice or some one of the summits that was, I can't remember even now, you know, it all goes into a bit of a fog. Uh, but it was either in the end of 2011, 2012, where Sarkozy and, um, and Merkel, you know, came out with this really kind of shocking, as it was then shocking, statement, which is that, you know, they admitted that actually Greece might have to leave the euro system. Um, so that was just where did that come from? You know, because obviously the whole idea about you know participating in the euro system is that it's forever, and so once you actually acknowledge uh, the risk or the likelihood that some you know that p- politicians are thinking about the, the option that somebody could leave, then obviously you know uh, financial markets kind of run amok, which which they duly did. Um, well, we've moved on a bit since then. Of course, um, politically now it's, uh, you know, we're, we're, stick- we're all in this together. Nobody's leaving. You know, exit's not even on the agenda and so on and so forth. Um, and I don't think um, uh, there's, there's certainly going to be any attempt on the part of, um, you know, Germany or, or um, well, certainly not under Chancellor Merkel uh, to basically, you know, kind of leverage, you know, a country out of the system. I don't, that's just kind of verboten. It's not going to happen, I don't think. Um, but um, I just think it would be prudent, uh, even if you don't want to kind of talk about it in very high-profile way, um, I just think it would be prudent um, for European leaders to talk about... I mean, it does require a certain amount of good faith, right, which is we understand your situation and, you know, we realise it could be difficult for you to stick in... I mean, I don't know whether that sort of conversation really actually happens. I I suspect because of the mistrust that's around that it probably doesn't. But actually... um, And so the the, the danger is that actually if you actually start to kind of cross this kind of Rubicon that it actually it will run out of control but the, the point is coming back to the begin, you know, the philosophical question in our discussion is should the euro survive is my answer is no not if creditors and debtors can't reach some kind of agreement to bring about a situation which uh, Professor Pissarides kind of wrote about recently which is you know if there's no growth or no kind of optimism or hope at the end of it what's the point of staying in um, um, the fair resolution. Well, I mean, the uh, sorry, I'm looking here because that's I think the question came from. Was it you? Yeah. Um, so, uh, I mean, basically, I think it's fundamentally it's about macroeconomic responsibility, which means that the core countries, Germany in particular, but countries that kind of fall into you know that sort of creditor cat- northern European category, these countries need to have higher inflation, whilst the obviously the countries in the periphery bordering the Mediterranean uh, have lower inflation. Now you might argue that in some cases, actually Greece for example, they've already got deflation. So the problem is already being overtaken by the fact that inflation is falling too far too fast. 
Um, so it would call for even more strenuous efforts on the part of the creditor countries of Germany to try to inflate. Um, but we all know Germany's history and we all know the um, uh, kind of hatred and, and fear that they have of inflation and, you know, is not very likely. The other thing, uh, for the sake of brevity, is, uh, again, harping back to what is the, how did this crisis all start? It was a balance of payments crisis. How did a balance of payments crisis come about? It's because, I don't want to be too nerdy about this, there will be some economists amongst you, but maybe not everybody. Balance of payments crisis is really about imbalances between savings and investment. So, uh, obviously, what happened before the crisis erupted was that, um, you know, Germany was... Uh, if the Eurozone were two countries, Germany was saving too much, Spain was spending too much or investing too much. So, you know, we got a crisis, now it's all kind of uh, came, come to a, a head. And so what's happening now is that the Spaniards and all the periphery countries are having to do a lot of saving, and that needs to be offset by more spending, more investment in uh, the northern European countries. So it's about how you distribute macroeconomic adjustment policies between countries that are in a better position and countries that are in a worse position. And at the moment, it's one-sided. It's all the burden is on the debtor countries. So I think that's uh, an ongoing problem. And lastly, um, was about national governments. Um, I'm not sure I can read my own writing now. Single resolution mechanism. Oh, about single resolution mechanism. About governments basically hijacking the... Um, yeah. yeah, that's exactly the point. Is that, um, you know, I remember actually going... Um, was in, uh, on a visit to Berlin last year. Uh, soon after, uh, the finance minister, German finance minister Schäuble, had an article in the FT, <clears throat> uh, sort of, not preempting, but it was in advance of, you know, big discussions in June and subsequently about banking union. And, you know, he said, you know, we can't move directly to a kind of a joint liability kind of structure and single resolution mechanism. We need to have networks of, cent of national central banks, you know, agreeing what they can agree. And, um, you know, when I was uh, in Berlin a couple of weeks later, I mean, they were absolutely, uh, there was no kind of uh, showboating about this. They were absolutely, you know, determined and serious about not being bulldozed by the European Commission or by anybody else into uh, an agreement on the single resolution mechanism, uh, which would have been, in their view, anti against their constitution. So, the, the idea that you can have national governments, co you know, coalescing with you know with different regulatory systems and different supervisory systems, and some are harder and some are softer, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's you know that's not really going anywhere, to be honest. Uh, and I think that's just a negative step if you want the euro to survive. That is. Paul. Um, on the, um, the opt-out thing, I, I disagree with George on this. Um, having an exit framework, um, you, the structure that dare not speak its name, you cannot have this. Um, because the, the fundamental problem is when a monetary union dies, it's not caused by rabid foreign exchange dealers, it's not caused by a collapse in the bond market, Monetary unions die because banks uh, experience runs. People get their money out of the bank and they either keep it in physical form at home or they take it across the border, depending on the circumstances. And as we know from the whole Northern Rock debacle, um, confidence in banks is a fragile thing. 
and people don't behave rationally uh, when their life savings are threatened in a bank uh, even slightly. If they think that the value of, of their savings in a bank is going to go, economic rationality goes out the window, uh, as George can personally testify to in the case of Northern Rock, I seem to recall. Um, I had a cone conversation with him uh, from a queue outside Northern Rock. Um, that, I think, is the problem. If you admit there is even a slightest possibility that Greece could exit in some kind of formal strategy, for example, you open yourself up to the first panicked headline in the Greek newspapers, leading to queues outside National Bank of Greece, and then leading to a bank run, and then leading to this becoming an inevitable conclusion. So you have to keep on saying... Um, you know, this is an irrevocable monetary union up until the point when it ceases to exist entirely, if, if that's what's going to happen. It has to be explosive. You can't do this in a, in a gradual way, I don't think. In terms of a, a fair resolution between debtors and creditors, I mean, I think that, that there are two levels here. There's the, the level in terms of near-term policy. You know, are we pushing for more growth? Are we pushing for more austerity? And there has been some movement here. I mean, you know, this year, fiscal policy is not a drag on growth in the Eurozone because we're not seeing an attempt to get the French budget below 3% of GDP, or not an, an incremental attempt. We're not seeing an incremental attempt to resolve uh, the Spanish fiscal deficit, which is you're probably going to be coming in at 4 4.5% of GDP this year. And so there has been some common sense coming through. We may need more of it. But then we also have to have the longer-term resolution, which is, yes, in part about who's spending and uh, who's saving, but it's also about creating a framework, uh, a common framework, uh, which means that you can rebalance economies. You need automatic stabilizers. Um, the point about the single resolution mechanism, I think, is, is a good one. And I think the dispute between the European Parliament and the um, uh, European Council at the moment is very telling. Um, I think it actually speaks to a, a more fundamental problem. The European Parliament is still... You know, widely treated as a joke. Turnout for the European parliamentary elections is derisory unless it's compulsory. Um, and everyone says, well, the European Parliament doesn't matter, it's a waste of space, it doesn't have any powers. The unfortunate problem is that since the Treaty of Nice, it does actually have power. Um, and that does now present a challenge that it's you know, the psychology of the electorate, and I think of governments too, is to treat the European Parliament as you know, this vast gravy train shuttling backwards and forwards uh, uh, across the, the Franco-Belgian border, when in fact um, it does have influence. The good news, I think, possibly the only good news um, coming out after the European elections this year, is that I think it is relatively unlikely that the extreme right will be able to form a coherent block uh, in the parliament, to actually be recognised as a, as a single block in the parliament because I think it's unlikely you're going to get five different extreme right parties to agree with one another on enough issues that they would be able to form a block. Um, it's not a, a terribly positive thing, but it's, it's something we can cling to. Uh, and what that means, I think, is that you know, with the shock of the rise of extremism, maybe the, the European Parliament becomes less relevant, and we, but we work towards national governments being coherent in their approach. Uh, forced by the external threat. That perhaps is, is how we move forward this year. Thank you. Um, question from up in front here. Uh, David Webb, uh, just left a role where I'd worked across Europe for the last eight years, working with 14 companies across Europe. 
my question, and well, firstly, a, a comment about the debate. I think it's very interesting hearing about the ideas about economics in the area of political extremism. And I think it's an extremely important topic to debating at this stage. What always surprises me is that that's linked to a debate about will the Europe survive or will it fail? From my experience, that tends to be a feature of the UK and not the countries I have worked in across Europe. And I wonder what the panel think about that reflects about the UK and also what their comments about the debate say about how the UK and Scotland should engage with Europe going forward. Um, Gentlemen in back. Actually, my question touches upon the the previous one. Um, I was wondering, as employees of a a European bank that's that's based outside of the Eurozone, but as individuals living in London, do you think that the... How do you do you have views on the, the the perennial continuing criticism that's voiced in the city of London as to the attempts by supposed attempts by Brussels to impose their aegis on the on the way that uh, transactions are conducted in London? Very much. Uh, my name is Kostadinos Kulocheris. Uh, I'm a third year student in journalism and communication studies, and I'm from Greece. I uh, followed the, the points uh, of uh, Mr. Donovan as well as uh, Mr. Magnus. My question is whether the solution we actually need at the moment, even temporarily, uh, is uh, a two year euro currency one euro for the north and one euro for the, side, uh, for the south due to the imbalances that exist at the moment in the, in the Union. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Paul. Um, I think it's an interesting question as to the issues about whether or not the euro fails or, or doesn't fail. I mean, I, the clients, obviously, that I speak to, um, institutional investors... Uh, on the one side, and um, uh, very wealthy individuals on the other, um, on the two sides of our business. Um, I have to say that there, there, is, there tends to be more scepticism from, from the UK client base. That does not mean that it doesn't exist elsewhere. Um, I have uh, endured quite uh, passionate um, uh, views and on occasion abuse uh, from clients in Germany, in Italy, who are convinced that this is you know, a, a robbery which is going to destroy them and etc. etc. And, and it must fail and it should fail. Um, and you know, there are people who hold this view very strongly. I have to say that I, th- I would say as a general rule that the further one goes from the euro area geographically, uh, the more inclined people are to view the euro as something that will fail largely because the further one goes from the euro area geographically, the more people apply rationality to the euro, which is something that should never be attempted. Um, How should the UK and Scotland engage in this? Um, I actually think that this is... um, that the announcement of a potential referendum in the UK um, on uh, membership of the EU has been extremely damaging uh, to the euro. 
It's been damaging to the UK as well, but I think it has also been damaging to the euro. It is worthwhile remembering that the technical design of the euro, I don't mean the, the economic nonsense of Maastricht, I mean the technical design of the euro is a British design that the committee that introduced the technical issues around the euro, that delayed the introduction of notes and coins in physical format and so on, was chaired by the Treasury in the UK. And that was because the UK actually had the technical expertise, the Treasury had the technical expertise to be able to implement this. What has happened since the announcement of the referendum in the UK is, in my view, the UK government has now almost entirely been ignored in the UK on all issues with maybe the sole exception of the TTIP, transatlantic trade deal. And as a result, UK expertise and technical expertise has been lost on a number of issues like banking union, where actually it would be quite worthwhile to have the input of the Treasury, which because of the nature of the City of London, does actually pay attention to financial markets in a way that perhaps other finance ministries have been uh, less focused on. And that, I think, then speaks into the second issue about you know, the, the tension that we now have where Brussels is, is suggesting regulation and the UK Treasury is saying that's not working and there isn't the compromise that we had in the past where UK's expertise in, in matters of finance um, would be used to adapt and make more workable regulations. What we're getting is a series of technically unworkable regulations being imposed and we'll then have to have a scramble to try and resolve these issues uh, after they've been imposed, which is never entirely satisfactory. Um, so I think that that's actually one of the big challenges from the UK. Is the solution to have two currencies? Um, the, the cynic in me, which I do try to suppress as much as possible, the cynic in me suggests it shouldn't be two, it should be 18. Um, <laughs> Maybe 17. I think the, French, uh, the, the, uh, the Belgians and the Luxembourgs uh, can, can keep their single monetary union. I don't think the solution is to have two. Not now. The solution was never to have a monetary union of, of 18 countries. The solution was to have a, a monetary union of four and a half. Um, but now that you've got it, I don't think you can split it. Because if you can split it once, you can split it again. And again and again. Um, plus the, the big question, um, if you're going to have a monetary union of two currencies, where do you put France? Um, and the answer to that is by no means clear, I would suggest. Indeed. Um, well, if I, again, sort of tackle your questions kind of almost in the same breath, really. Um, just to, I'm just trying to think what I could add to, to what Paul has said, because I think it's relatively uh, uncontentious in terms of what we are saying, uh, in terms of agreement. Um, a couple of things, though. Um, the, the situation of the UK is completely unpredictable. Um, I mean, not just because we don't know whether there'll be a referendum and, and, and if there is one, you know, how we'll vote. Um, but actually, if, um, if the euro area is successful in uh, overcoming the hurdles which uh, we've been discussing this evening and that I laid out in terms of uh, integration and so on, if it were successful, then the Eurozone actually would displace the EU as Europe's principal organizing force. There might be very little purpose, actually, in being a member of the EU if all of the big decisions are being made in the context of the Eurozone of 18 countries. Um, so, uh, in a way, that would sort of make up the Brits' mind for them if, if the timing was kind of propitious. On the other hand, of course, if, 
you know, if, if Europe can't make that progress inside the Eurozone, then of course the EU um, actually is not as nearly as irrelevant and actually could be a very kind of important um, um, uh, structure uh, to be part of. Um, so we can't really determine that. It's not really in our hands to do that. Um, but I think it's, uh, it's quite right to say, you know, that the, the further away you go from London or from the United Kingdom, you know, the, the less the issue of survival is kind of spoken about as something. Although, you know, reading Mr. Wilder's speech today, um, and, and he's a Northern European, actually kind of, you know, makes you kind of jump a little bit and say, well, actually, you know, there is a discussion going on here, at least amongst, you know, a rump of, of the European electorate. Um, yeah, I mean, as far as, I mean, the, the issue of, you know, European banks having to sort of kowtow to what Brussels is saying, I mean, the reality is, you know, financial services, whether we like it or not, is, you know, a very, very important part of the UK economy still. And, um, you know, with the, the attitude of, I mean, I don't work for a bank anymore, so I was going to speak my mind, really. Um, uh, but, I mean, uh, I, I think that uh, the banks, you know, will uh, lobby and, you know, resist, um, you know, I mean, they like to be part of the process. They like to kind of circumnavigate the rules wherever they can and if possible. I mean, that's kind of the same in banking the world over. It's not just in London. Um, and, um, yeah, I think that resentment against Brussels, I think, is it's there and it's you know, not going to change, is it, really? Um, yeah, and I agree, you know, on two tiers. The thing is, if you had a, if you had a, a Mediterranean tier of currencies, so comprising Greece... Italy, Spain, Portugal, um, Cyprus, uh, Malta, I don't know. I mean, who's the creditor in that group is the problem. <laughs> you know, you, you've got to have balance within the monetary union uh, in terms of, of creditors and debtors and, you know, resource transfers from rich to poor and, you know, so on and so forth. And it's not obvious to me how that such a union would work. In practical terms, actually, uh, sort of dividing the Eurozone into two on a Sunday night, you know, and then on Monday it's going to look like this. I mean, that's it's a, kind of a nice idea, but it's a little bit romantic, I think. It's a good question, but I don't think it's very realistic. Okay, thank you. Uh, rather recklessly, I'd indicated to a few members of the audience that I would be able to get to their questions. Given the time, I'm not going to be able to do this, but I would like to turn to our speakers to see if they have any closing statements they want to make. Um, yeah, well, I think my, my closing statement really is, uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've spoken about uh, in a more sort of permissive way about, you know, we should allow uh, the euro to fragment if needs be. Uh, I mean, it's not something that I would look forward to. And I certainly would concur with what Paul said at the beginning is that, you know, that that, that process would be very messy and, um, you know, disruptive and uh, not pleasant at all, and it would certainly have, you know, costs, um, I mean, political and economic costs. But it is, you know, it is an alternative to, uh, I mean, it's not a kind of a black and white, which is that if we all stay, if all the countries stay together, it's going to be fine, because um, it might not be. And, um, and so I think eventually, you know, people will make their own decisions in uh, different countries about whether they want to be part of this um, escapade or not. 
um, in perpetuity. And uh, I don't think, you know, obviously it's only, the Eurozone has only existed since 1999, so it's, it's still kind of a bit of a baby, really, in terms of the, global, uh, in terms of the monetary system. Um, so it may still be having teething pains. I, I don't think this is over, and I think, you know, we, we can't resolve that. This um, debate has, has been concluded. Bless you. Um, I think from, from my side, um, I, I agree with George. It can't continue to survive in its current form. I think we can all agree that what we have today is not a viable long-term structure for an economy to operate in. But I think that it can change, um, uh, even in a climate of, of political extremism, perhaps because we have a climate of political extremism. Um, over the last six years of the crisis, you economists have looked to economic crises and financial market crises to force the euro to change and it's worthwhile re reflecting on how much it has changed in terms of structures over the last six years um, you know, the European Central Bank intervening in financial markets you know, stating that as, a, as an objective um, you know, if you'd have suggested that in Germany in, in 2007 you would have been met with an outcry and yet now it is uh, grudgingly uh, accepted, but accepted. Um, so I do have belief uh, in the ability to, to reform, and I think that extremism in a political crisis may well be required for that, but it can, it can help that process. What I am most concerned about, though, is that an environment of extremism tends to lend itself to an environment of scapegoating, blaming one problem for you know, everything that has gone wrong, uh, be that foreigners or the euro or the Germans or whatever it happens to be. Um, and a climate of scapegoating is potentially very, very damaging because you misdirect energies, you misdirect resources, and you don't end up with the optimal solution. Uh, so that, I think, is, is the biggest fear that we have to face uh, over the next few years. Okay. Um, on that note, this evening, I'm afraid, has to come to a close. First of all, I want to do the most important thing, which is to thank you all for your enthusiasm and your participation here this evening. But in closing of the event, I wonder if I could get you to join me in thanking our speakers for a most interesting evening. Thank you very much.